every time that you learn something new that you're going to try and you know use later and hopefully boost your earnings there's a good chance that that thing that you learn that's new early in your career or in school just becomes obsolete hi i'm clementine vanifonter i'm an assistant professor of economics at the university of toronto and this is Inequality Talks. Kadim Nore is a fourth-year PhD candidate at the Harvard Kennedy School. In his research, he's interested in understanding talent markets and the institutions that facilitate and provide people with human capital and career opportunities. Also, he has a blog. You should check it out. It's on his website. We talked about his research with David Deming, where they look at what happens to people who choose to graduate with a degree in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics when they turn 40. Are they still earning more than those graduating in humanities or social science? In other words, does science pay in the long run? Hi, Kadim. Hey. How's it going? It's going well, as, as well as it can be, given the circumstances. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with me today uh, to, to talk about your work. So um, when we think about economic inequality, one intuitive thing uh, that people think about is the type of educational policies that we can design to try to address uh, the increase in inequality. And there, in economics, there's traditionally this very influential line of research uh, that it tries to explain the increase in inequality with what they call the skill bias technical change, which in simple term is the idea that there's a shift in the production technology that favors skilled workers over unskilled workers or for better terminology, college educated workers versus workers who don't have a college degree. And in your research, you focus on the economic returns of STEM majors. How does your work fit into this broad line of research on skilled bias technical change? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so, really what my co-author David and I uh, noticed was that in the skill bias technological change research, typically the way people think about it is new technology comes into uh, the market through a series of forces and that technology tends to be geared towards people who are educated so they know how to work with the technology and that increases their earnings potential and uh, therefore the returns to education go, go up because of this. The process through which this happens in a micro sense is uh, somewhat less uh, well understood. And so, for instance, you might imagine that, let's say you're a college-educated worker in a very technology-intensive field, um, changes in technology don't just instantly make you more productive, there's a process through which you have to learn how to use that technology. And depending on where you are in your career, it might not be so easy to do that. You might need to sort of re-educate. And so what David and I noticed was that uh, this aspect of skill bias technological change, the fact that there is still some cost associated with adopting this technology and that that cost is borne differentially depending on the age at which um, you happen to be, um, this was something that was underexplored. And so we decided that we wanted to sort of see whether or not it's the case that technological change, uh, if there's evidence that there are some costs imposed uh, on people who uh, need to figure out how to adjust. So one way to study how people adjust to this technical change is to see how the skill requirement of a particular job changes. So 
if like I look at a given occupation, like what is expected of me to be doing on the job? So you look at that and you also look at earnings dynamics over the course of the career of college graduates. What is the best way to measure the change in skill requirement for a particular job? And how do you do that in practice? That's a good question. So typically, uh, we don't have detailed data on what, uh, at the occupation level, what kinds of skills um, are being demanded. And so it's very difficult to get access to, like, our skills get becoming obsolete, our new skills being required, um, and that sort of thing. Um, what we are able to use is a, uh, a relatively novel data source um, produced by a company called Burning Glass Technologies. Essentially what they are is a technology company that's they scrape the web of online job postings. They get the, the sort of near universe of online job postings since 2007. And in those job postings, it not only has things like uh, occupational titles at a very detailed level, but also the skill requirements that companies are asking for in these job postings. Um, and so these skills can vary from you know very detailed and uh, job specific to general skills like you know like communication would be like a general skill um, and because we can see this over time at the occupation level we can get a sense about the types of skills that are being required in a given time period and for really from 2007 to 2019 is the time period where we have sort of really great data so if we think about software developers for instance you look at what was required for them back in 2007 and what is required for them like today? We get the full list of tasks that you need to do in that job that were ever in a posting for that particular kind of job. And then in 2019, we see for each task, what percentage of the postings for this occupation have this task. And then in 2007, we do the same thing. And then we take the difference. And so certain things are going to become more common, certain things are becoming less common. And we take, actually, we take the absolute value of that difference and sum them across tasks within that occupation. And then we assign that value to the occupation. And that's our measure of skill change. One thing that's important to notice is that we treat new tasks or tasks that become more, relatively more common and tasks that become relatively less common uh, identically. So it's really a measure of change, like churn in general in the skills and occupation over that window, as opposed to just thinking about new skills versus uh, skills becoming obsolete, because we think both of those are uh, important things to measure. And what do you find when you look at differences across occupations? What are the occupations for which you see the largest change in skill requirement? We find that generally what we call applied STEM jobs or jobs uh, that are computer occupations, computer science, um, and engineering occupations are the uh, occupations that typically have um, the fastest rate of change. The other jobs that are surprisingly uh, fast changing are there are certain business occupations like advertising and uh, there are certain financial jobs that also um, have pretty, pretty fast change. On the other side, the occupations that don't change very much. So education, um, so teaching, for instance, and healthcare workers. We didn't see very much change um, for them in general. One caveat for the slow changing occupations is that a lot of them are occupations that are highly licensed. And so oftentimes in the postings, people will require that you have certain licenses and that they'll use that instead of skills. And so we, we, we do think that some of those slow changing occupations maybe aren't as slow changing as we're measuring because really a lot of what's going on in sort of the licensing requirement doesn't show up in the posting. 
which gets a little bit at like some of the issues with these data. They're not necessarily perfect, but we think that they're sort of the best at trying to answer the question we're trying to answer. And you are measuring this uh, change in skill requirement over the course of, of people's career, right? And there's a pattern that is really interesting is the fact that it's incredibly stable in computer jobs, like computer science jobs, for instance, over their years of experience. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think you're, you're referring to the percentage of vacancies that require new skills by experience level across field. What we show is that in computer and engineering occupations, the percentage of skills that are required um, that are new typically are higher for all experience levels. And it's pretty flat, meaning that if you are required to say, uh, have 12 plus years of experience for an engineering occupation in 2019, the percentage of skills that they will require you to have that didn't exist 12 years ago is just over 40%, which really means that a fair number of people that are being hired for who, who basically need to have a certain number of years of experience, they, they couldn't have learned these skills in school because they would have left school before these uh, skills actually even started to be demanded in the particular job. And this is quite different for all other occupations. The rate at which uh, these new skills are required in other occupations is much lower. And for more skilled postings, we find that the, that the requirements are less. So typically when, when you're sort of an older worker, or more experienced worker in, in other fields, they actually don't require you to have these new skills at the same rate. to interpret your results is to consider that there's a sort of competition or race between what you learn on the job, like coming from your experience, and the obsolescence of the skills you learn at school. And you come up with a theoretical model. Can you give us the intuitions behind the model and why it's useful to predict some patterns in the data? The basic thing that we wanted to uh, include in our model was each year in a given occupation, some percentage of the skills are going to become obsolete replaced by other jobs. And so the rate at which this happens is going to vary across occupations in our model. Why would anyone work in an occupation where the rate of change is really fast? Because if the rate of change is really fast, that means the returns to experience essentially decline. Every time that you learn something new that you're going to try and, you know, use later and hopefully boost your earnings, there's a good chance that that thing that you learn that's new early in your career or in school just becomes obsolete. But it just so happens that the very uh, rapidly changing occupations tend to have a high early return to going into them. People are faced with this trade-off of deciding, okay, should I go into an area that has a really high early return uh, and sacrifice the potential to increase my wages later, or should I go into an occupation that has a low initial return but increase my wages over time? From the model, we get a series of predictions. In occupations where skills are changing very rapidly, you expect to see slower wage growth over time. 
and in occupations where the skill demands aren't changing very fast, you usually see more rapid wage growth. This is ultimately something that is very clearly borne out um, in our paper. The return to going into fast changing occupations uh, is high initially and just diminishes over time. And what happens to these workers who are employed in these occupations, typically, where they are declining returns to their skills? How do you follow them and what happens to them? A couple of things can happen to them. So we do find that there's a pretty rapid uh, selection out of these occupations over time. So people uh, do tend to shift out. Uh, It's actually higher ability workers that tend to select out more rapidly, which sort of goes with this idea that if you're a fast learner, then going into an occupation that's really slow changing, you get a lot of returns to that because you can learn and you can get returns to experience. And so consistent with this, actually, we find that of the people that leave, which is uh, roughly uh, 18% by age 40, the majority of them actually go into management occupations. And so, which is not not a big part of the paper, um, but I thought that was extremely interesting. I think it actually does go with this idea that high ability uh, workers in these really fast changing occupations, they can have other opportunities. The returns uh, across the life cycle of of going into fast-changing occupations still decline throughout the life cycle, despite the fact that some people leave and go into management occupations that presumably pay relatively high. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their paper. I wanted you to tell us more about the self-selection issue that you dealt with in your paper when you measured the long-term earning dynamics of college graduates in STEM. So another way of explaining the declining returns uh, to working in fast-changing occupations over time is that it's not, it has, doesn't really have anything to do with how fast-changing the skill demands are in those occupations, but it might have something to do with just the different work structures in fast-changing versus slow-changing occupations. So for example, if it's the case that in slow-changing occupations, it's more common for people who select into those occupations to initially not work full-time or to take internships, other kinds of occupations that don't show up in the ACS, so the American Community Survey, um, as work. Um, but then or the, it's really additional skill investment. So when they do come into the labor market, they have higher earnings. And so this would tend to push up the wage profile over time in slow changing occupations and could explain the declining returns. And it might have nothing to do with the rate of change of skill demands. Um, and so one thing that we do in order to try and address this um, has to do with imputing wages to workers who are not working. And so we can see uh, these workers who are not listed as working in the ACS. And so ultimately what we do is we make assumptions about the earnings that people would get if they were working. And we make assumptions that are quite unrealistic just to see whether or not our model can sort of hold up to pretty intense assumptions. So ultimately, what we find is that even under very strong assumptions about what these people would otherwise be making, um, and even if we assume they're very highly ability selected, or that they're really high ability people, it doesn't completely eliminate the pattern. I wanted to talk about the policy implications of your research, uh, because we hear a lot that one way to address long-term unemployment and to facilitate a smooth entry in the labor market for young people, for instance, is to promote apprenticeship and vocational training. 
And in some ways, you could think that these programs are going to be task specific and that it could affect the long term earnings of these people. What do you think about this and what do you think your research is bringing to the table in terms of designing educational policies that are relevant? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, um, this paper really got uh, my co-author and I to think more of uh, STEM education, applied science education as vocational. I mean, in some sense, you learn a very narrow set of skills um, and those narrow set of skills, so they, they have high returns. They can, if they, if they become obsolete, I mean, people um, can end up in rough situations. Um, and so uh, one thing that I think uh, would make a lot of sense is, um, so I think, Maybe the most straightforward policy um, is support for uh, on-the-job uh, learning and sort of after-school education so that if, if people want to go into these STEM jobs, they have the tools to be able to, you know, educate themselves and be able to keep up. A more general uh, prescription would be encouraging people to diversify their skills. The fact that we see people going into STEM and then going into management occupations, um, management occupations are typically more demanding in terms of social skills, in terms of um, communication skills, those kinds of things. Not everybody is able to make that transition, um, but I, and this is a bit of speculation, but I would imagine that the individuals that do make that transition, they have a broad set of skills, not a very narrow set of skills. And so uh, in general, I think this pushes away from the very sort of technology specific targeted vocational kind of education that oftentimes you'll see in, you know, like New York Times articles that basically just talk about how STEM's the best. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask if you had any particular uh, recommendation for our listeners in terms of books or uh, movies or podcasts that you enjoyed and you want to share with us. The, the TV show that I'm watching uh, right now, um, or that I recently finished, was Breaking Bad, which uh, of, of all TV shows is, I think, um, actually a really, really great uh, show that's essentially about comparative advantage um, and about the ability to take advantage of, you know, arbitrage opportunities that are quite rare. It's about risk preferences. And, and so I, it, was, I, it was a show that I thought had so much economics in it, and it was so uh, easy to understand. The other thing I was thinking about that had a big influence on me was um, a book by Joe Heinrich. Uh, he's a, uh, a human evolutionary biologist. It's called The Secret to Our Success. Basically talks about the importance of culture for humans to be able to pass down, not like sort of situation-specific knowledge, other kinds of knowledge. And I think culture is a, a topic that's going to become much more um, salient in economics. So I would recommend that book. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Kadim. You're very welcome. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clémentine Vanefanter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.